Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. We left off, we're about to do, we're going to do, um, I think, the the Shir Shalyom, Shirim Shalyom. Um, we'll do all the weekday ones, we'll do the Rosh Chodesh one. Maybe we'll do the House of Mourning ones, ones. There are two of them, <laughs> traditional. Um, we did in great depth over many weeks, the one for the high holidays. We're not going to look at these, uh, for sure. We're definitely not going to do in as great depth. We'll try to do either <clears throat> one per week or one in two weeks, spread over two weeks. Uh, and then I think we'll do Kaddish because there's been a request for that. And that's sort of a logical place. And then we'll do something different, meaning I don't think I'm going to turn back to the beginning of the Sidur again. We'll try to <clears throat> try to, I don't know, we'll move forward in a different kind of way. So that's what we're up to. Shir Shalyom. Any questions? Any objections? Okay. So we're going to start with the Psalm for Yom Rishon Sunday. That is on page 22 in the Sim Shalom, page 85 in the Slim Shalom. Some people might say, some people might ask, how come in the Sim Shalom, the Shir Shalom is before Baruch Shamar, and in the Slim Shalom, the Shir Shalom is where we say at a Temple Bethlehem morning minion, which is um, after Aleinu. And the answer to that is because saying Shir Shalom originally is a minhag, it's a... um Medieval minhag and is really non-statutory, doesn't have a bracha involved, baruch Hashem. It's not specified by the Talmud as something we're obliged to say every day. So because it was minhag, it, uh, in different traditions, it got stuck in different places. Um, on Shabbat morning, even, uh, there are three potential places. Some people would do it early before baruch shamar. Some people do it at the end of shachrit. There's some Sidurim that actually have it at the end of Musaf. Okay. So that's why if you were ever confused about how come in the Sim Shalom, it's in the early part of the service and in the Slim Shalom, it's at the end of the service. That is the reason. The existence of the Psalm of the day, that there were Psalms of the day, that actually goes back to the Mishnah. So the Mishnah is the, uh, the earliest document that actually specifies these specific psalms. And the Mishnah says, these are the psalms that the Leviim sang, recited, chanted, sang in the Beit HaMikdash every morning. On Sunday, they said, Lashem Ha'aretz Umloah. On Monday, they said, Gadol Hashem Umloah Ma'od. So that's the Mishnah in Masachet Tamid. We'll take a look at it another time. Um, so, the fact that these Shir Shalyoms are connected to specific days of the week, that goes way back, Mishnah about the year 200 uh, of the Common Era, over 100 years after the Beit HaMikdash, the temple was destroyed. But the Mishnah is recording a memory that back when the temple was standing, these are the song, the Psalms that the Levim recited each day of the week, and it specifies which one for which day of the week. So, the idea of these psalms connected to a specific day of the week, that goes way back to Mishnah times or late Second Temple times. Um, it's only in the Middle Ages, though, early Middle Ages, that it gets stuck into the Sidur as a, and some people have the practice to add a psalm. 
Okay. Um, so what we are doing is then we are in some sense, um, revisiting, reenacting what the Levim did in temple times. Um, the Talmud, um, tries to come up with reasons for why these specific Psalms are said on these days. And some of those reasons are sort of obvious and some of them are really less obvious. Again, I think, um, I don't want to give it away at the beginning. We'll try to do that passage in the Talmud at the end, after we've gone through the series of daily Psalms. Um, uh, but as we go along and study them, I think we should ask ourselves, why might this be the Psalm for Sunday or Wednesday or whatever day? And I think, um, one can look at that on different levels. One is, you know, Im- implied, I guess not, not explicit, but implicit is, um, the days of the week are the days of creation. So we might say like, oh, does Psalm for Sunday have anything to do with creation of the first day? Does Psalm for Monday have anything to do with creation of the second day? Um, that's some of the links that the Talmud tries to make. Uh, so we'll ask that question of each Psalm. And then we'll also ask as a sequence of Psalms, um, is there some sense or rhyme or reason for the sequence through the week? Meaning, is it just the Psalm for Tuesday has something to do with Tuesday and creation? And that's why it's there. Or in addition, does the whole, is the whole more than the sum of its parts? Is the sequence of Psalms, uh, somehow make sense differently than just in addition to a, an individual psalm for an individual day. So it's going to take us a long time till we get to that question, of course. That'll take weeks. Okay. So that's the background. Again, these are the psalms connected to the days of the week because I see people drifted in late. So I'm just going to repeat one or two sentences. These are the psalms connected to the day of the week that was said by the Levites when the temple was standing. That's what the Mishnah reports to us. There's a medieval minhag for us to add a psalm near the end. And we're now going to look at the psalm. So again, I'm on page 22 in the sim, page 85 in the slim and whatever page you have in your sidur. By the way, it's really um the dominant Ashkenazi, I think Sephardi Binhag also, to say the Psalms after Aleinu at the end. The saying it before Baruch Shamar is kind of a minority opinion, but it is a legitimate Minhag. Okay, so we're going to start with the Psalm for Sunday, which is Psalm 24. Just to say the obvious, unlike, let's say, Hallel, where the Psalms are consecutive in the book of Sefer Tehillim, the book of Psalms, or unlike uh, the heart of Tzuke de Zimra from Asherah up through Haluel uh, de Kocho, where the the Psalms are also in order in the book of Psalms. These Psalms are not in order in the book of Psalms. They're taken from one here and one there and one there. They're not in numeric order and they're not consecutive. So they obviously have been selected not as a block, you know, sort of single individual psalms attached to the particular day. So we're going to look at the psalm for Sunday. That's what we're going to do today. That was all that preamble and intro. Does anyone have any questions or comments before we go on to looking into the psalm for Sunday? I just want to pause. Okay. There are questions that you have that occur to you later. There will be ample opportunity to bring them up. So, they all have the the uh, intro line. Hayom Yom Rishon Ba Shabbat. Today is Sunday. 
that the and the uh on which the Levites recited in the temple. Um a Psalm of David. Again, all, all these superscriptions about David. Traditionally, Book of Psalms was written by David. Uh original meaning it could be written by David. It could mean written by David. It could mean a Psalm for David. It could mean a Psalm about David. It could mean a Psalm in the Davidic tradition. So it could mean a lot of different things. We're not going to dwell on it very much. Lashem Haaretz Umloah Tevel The earth, you may have heard this. I think it's the title of a Heschel book. The earth is the Lord's and its fullness, the world and its inhabitants. So this is pretty straightforward parallelism. The hallmark of biblical poetry, Tevel and Aretz are rough synonyms, and Meloah and Yosheva are not synonyms, but they're sort of conceptually parallel. Meloah means everything that fills it. Yosheva means all that dwell in it. By the way, where is that phrase familiar to us, Tevel the Yosheva? We, we all said it uh, about 15 to 20 minutes ago. Yakiru veyedu kol yoshvei tevel ki lechatichra kol berech. Where is that from? What am I singing? Aleinu. The second, the quote unquote second paragraph of Aleinu, the Alkain. Yakiru veyedu kol yoshvei tevel. All those who dwell on the, on, in the world, right? So that seems to be a, a phrase. World dwellers. Yoshvei tevel. Tevel v'yoshveva. So, the whole earth or the world is God's and everything in it and everyone in it. That's line number one. Ki hu al yamim yisada ve'al naharot yichonineha. For God established her, it, which refers to aretz, which is generally feminine. Okay. Um, God established the, the earth on the waters and established it on the Neharot, the rivers. Okay, so we have a poetic reference here to creation. And we remember, we've commented on this before, that we have lots of fragments and uses of these fragments in the Psalms, which are poetry of ancient poetry, which um, reflects a different kind of creation than what we're familiar with from Breshi chapter one or chapter two, but a story, uh, uh, an echo, a very early mythic story, which we have from other cultures around like Mesopotamia, that at the beginning of time, the chaotic waters overwhelmed the world or threatened to overwhelm the world. And God had to fight them and beat them back and limit them, okay? Um, and this is all very relevant, of course, because we just read Breshit and then Noah, right? So in Breshit chapter one, we have what, what, what most many readers say is kind of a polemic against that early mythic idea. Are there waters in Breshit chapter one? Good. Absolutely. Yeah. And where's the first part of the waters? Where's the first point where the waters are mentioned? The Rakia? Even before the Rakia. 
Even before creation starts, Kiman. So there is Mayim, which is referred to as Tehom, the deeps. Um, Mm -hmm. But unlike in the poetic version, where the waters are rebelling and fighting, and God has to subdue them, okay, (laughs) the waters are kind of quiescent. Right, as it were. Um, and, and is God fighting the waters? No. Ruach Elohim is Mirachefet, right? So the spirit of whatever Ruach Elohim is, mighty wind or wind of God or spirit of God, something is, uh, Mirachefet is sort of like hovering. It's actually the word that's used for, uh, the parent birds over the nest. It's what they do. They kind of hover, right? Mirachef. So hovering, floating, right? So God, far far removed from the idea of a battle or a conquest, right? Waters are quiescent, quiescent. God is floating, okay? And then um, in the Babylonian creation myth, Enuma Elish, the God hacks, has to hack, H-A-C-K, uh, the, the goddess who personifies the watery depths, Tiamat, which is cognate with the word Tahom, hacks her in half, right? And what does God do to separate the waters in our version in chapter one of Rashid? Does God hack? How does God create? God with words. Speaks. God speaks and it is done. All right. So, um, Rashid chapter one has elements in it. By the way, and then of course in day, th- so day two, the waters are separated into above and below. Day three, the, the, the waters are bounded into certain places, right? Lakes and rivers. Okay. Uh, again, but it's all done by God's speech. So many readers look at Breshi chapter one and they look either at the, uh, Mesopotamian pagan creation myths or the poetic echoes of those myths that we find in the poetic material in the Bible, like Tehillim and some other sections like Job, which is also poetic. Um, and they see in, in, in Breshi chapter one, an alternative version of what happened at the beginning of time. Yeah, they were waters, but they're not raging. Remember, Larry, you asked us about the Friday Psalm, right? The water, which we'll come back to this on Friday. The waters are raging. Right. So in Breshi chapter one, there are waters. There's no raging. It's all quiescent. God is floating on top of it. And God does God's acts of creation simply by speaking much more abstract than fighting a battle. Okay. But here in this line, we have an echo of that uh, idea that's preserved in poetry. Okay. That God founded the earth on the waters. There's nothing violent here. There's no battle here, right? There are battle in other lines in Tehillim, right? The waters are not roaring here, but they they roar on the Friday Psalm, which is Psalm uh, 91, I think, right? Um, but this idea that the earth is founded, the Hashem founded the earth on the waters, okay? So everything in the world belongs to God, because he is the one who established it. Okay, so it's an idea in these first two lines of, we have two separate ideas, right? But God's total control, dominion, you might say, over the world, all right? 
everything belongs to God because God is the one who made it. I will pause for a moment for question comment. Feel free. Oh, Larry, you raised your hand. Larry has an electron. Yeah, I just want. Yeah. Sorry. Um, you didn't mention the idea that Shamayim might also be part of this waters. I've, I mean, I've always understood that in the beginning, there was nothing but this waters that was all encompassing. Yeah. And then so to the, to the ancient mind of the poet's mind, or, or the, the author of the, uh, of, of the, of the Tanakh, uh, at least of Breshit, the, the Shemayim are the waters above, and then the waters below were collected right. on this expanse that was formed. The author of our psalm seems not that interested in the waters above. That's all I'll say about that. Yeah. By the way, when we understand that, 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 I'm going to call it underlying mythic version of creation, then we understand the story of the flood better, right? In the flood, Hashem undoes <coughs> creation by letting the waters that have been held back from below and from above burst forth, right? So the flood is actually the undoing of Maaseh Breshi. The interesting thing is that the author of Breshi chapter one has none of that. Well, sorry, it clearly, I don't want to say is uninterested in that. I would say is anti-interested in all of that. Right. <laughs> the author of Reishi chapter one says, no, creation, no struggle whatsoever, no conflict whatsoever. Everything is done simply by God's Vayomer, 10 times, I believe. OK, uh, so the the it's a very um, I'm going to call it demythologized version of Reishi, uh, of of that creation story, preserving elements to home. Right. The watery depths, the water being split in two, the water is being bounded. OK, so certainly there are elements of that mythic creation story that they are preserved, but they're totally, I would use the word denatured or pacified. Okay. Uh, and thus, most scholars would say uh, um, de-paganized, defanged of their paganism. Uh, Alan and then Meyer. I, I just had a question regarding, you said something about hacking as part of the myth of what was taking place from yeah, the, it says that, the mythological that, uh, world. Who, who is the god in, uh, Marduk in, uh, in, um, in, in the Babylonian creation epic? Marduk slays Tiamat or Tahom and hacks her in half with a weapon. He has weapons. Huh. He has weapons. The watery people have weapons. They fight with their weapons. He slays her and hacks her in half. Huh. I always huh. thought huh. Marduk. Huh. I always thought Marduk was related to Mordechai and the Purim story. Or is uh, that I mean, a different Marduk? Wh- what that means is Mordechai in the per- in the Purim story is a nice assimilated Persian Jew. It would be like a Jewish kid in America being named. Chris, which sometimes they are, right? Okay, so he has, Mordechai has a nice Persian name, same as Esther, which is Ishtar, which is a Persian goddess. Mm-hmm. So Mordechai and Esther have Persian names. Yeah, but Marduk goes back to, you know, Babylonian creation epic from, you know, we have copies of it from like between 1500 BCE and 2000 BCE. 
before the Torah's times. Meyer. Um, I think you may have said this already. I don't know. But I think the idea here is that Yom Rishon, right after Shabbat, the seventh day. No, no, day, no. We're not up that to that. Start... No, we're not up to that, oh, Meyer. sorry. Okay. We're, we're, we said, yeah, we okay. said we're going to talk about why these psalms are attached to particular days. We're going to do that at the end of the psalm. We'll, we'll look at it. Sorry. Hold on. That's okay. all right. That's okay. Hold on to that. Uh, Bernie, I think Bernie was waving a hand. Same, same question, but I'll wait. No, yeah, yeah. We're going to, we got to look at the psalm and then we'll ask why is it attached to you. Surely you can have thoughts along the way. Uh, but Meyer, I cut you off. Tell me the thought. Go ahead. You don't have to hold on to it for a week and a half. No, no, it's fine. I mean, there's obviously the, the idea that, you know, we start the week like the starting of the world. Correct. In the sense of we readjust after after Good. the day so of Shabbat, would, which is right. when Shashan rested, and then go ahead. So why, yeah? So why would this? Why might this psalm be picked for Sunday? Because Sunday is the first day of creation. So we're talking about God, as it were, beginning creation. Okay. Good. Okay. So then we have a change. Mia levehar Hashemu mia kumbim kocho. Rhetorical question. Well, it's not a rhetorical question because it's going to have an answer. Um, who? may ascend the mountain of Hashem, who may stand up in his holy place. Now, what is the mountain of Hashem? What do you think? The mount where the temple is built. Temple mount. So that would be a concrete answer. And remember, if you remember our all our discussions about the psalm for the for high holidays, okay, where we talked a lot about Beit Hashem and how that can mean either literally God's, concretely God's house, assumed to be the temple, or it can also be a metaphor for, you know, being on the God squad, the God team, okay, in in God's club. So could be either, I think, let's, or, or let's just hold on to that. So who can come to the temple? Answer, Niki Chapayim Uvar Levav. The person who has clean hands and a pure heart, bar here is not the Aramaic word bar, which means son of, like in bar mitzvah. It's a Hebrew word, which means purity. So the person who is clean of hands and pure of, of my heart, mind. Asher lo lashav nafshi. Now, this is a Korean active, which means it's written differently in the text and it's pronounced differently with a little note next to it. So in the text, it's written, Asher lo nasa lashav nafsho, which me- makes more sense as the pshat, but it's read as nafshi, okay, which is a little harder to explain. So it means the one who has not... uh I can't really translate it literally. I, I really have to translate it um, figuratively. Who has not used God's names in false oaths, right? What does it refer to? What does it make you think of? Something in the Torah that you all know. Ten Commandments. Right. It's the uh, third commandment, Bernie, right? Lo Do not uh, use your God's name Falsely, uh, presumably this has something to do with in the ancient world. People would take oaths in court. I guess we still take oaths in court, right? Um, and they might take an oath using God's name, which was not uttered lightly. So this is about being honest, 
Okay. So it's a way of saying someone clean hands, pure heart, honest person, below nishba lemirma, who does not swear, uh, duplicitously or something like that. Okay. Um, and nasa the, in the, in the 10 commandments, the, the way of saying it is lisa et hashem, right? Lotisa et shem elohecha lashav. Do not literally kind of lift up or take up God's name for vainly. And here, instead of shame, it's nefesh, which sort of means self. Okay. And the pshat, uh, sorry, the, the, the way it's written in manuscripts of Sefer Chilim makes more sense of pshat nafsho, right? Because it's referring in the third person to who? God. The person who does not take his name in vain. His being capital H being God. Harder to interpret it or understand what the author might mean if it is said according to the written version. According to the written version, it's nafshi. For those who are not sure what I mean, there's certain words in Torah manuscripts and Bible manuscripts which are written a particular way but pronounced a different way. There's a scribal tradition that even though they're written this way, we pronounce them a different way and they have a little note to tell you that. Okay. And it's called a Cree and a Ktiv. Cree means read it this way and Ktiv means write it that way. Okay. And there are a whole bunch of them. And, you know, why, why there are those variations, a whole longer story, right? That no one really knows the answer to. But what would it mean if it's Asher lo nasa lashav nafshi? That would seem to mean that God is speaking because nafshi means myself. So that's why the the way it's writ uh, the way it's read fits less well because we were talking about God in the third person, right? And if we if we understand it as nafshi, the one who does not take myself in vain, then we have shifted to God speaking in the first person, and then we go to Yisabracham Eit Hashem. He will get a blessing from God. So then we're we're going back to talking about God in the third person. Right. So Nafsho, the written version, who has not taken his self vainly, meaning his name vainly. Sorry that it's gendered, but Hebrew is a gendered language. OK. Um, um, when contemporary rabbis try to speak in shul, they say now awkward locutions like the one who uh, the one God is, is is talking about the one who has not taken God's name in vain, rather than saying his name in vain, because we try to avoid the, the gendering of God in English as much as we can, if we're sort of conscious of that, because, uh, of course, God is beyond gender. Um, so that's nafsho and nafshi. If it's nafshi, it's the written, the, the version that's read. It's a little harder to understand because we jump from talking about God in the third person to God quoting God's self in the first person, jumping back to the third person. Everyone follow what I just said? Right. So the written version of Nafsho kind of, I'm just going to say, is easier to understand and explain. So who's allowed to come up to the temple? People with clean hand, pure heart, honest people who do not swear deceitfully. 
and that person, that person will receive a blessing from God and tzedakah from God of deliverance. Here it's just reward. We tend to think of tzedakah only as doing righteousness, but tzedakah along with chesed and emet is one of these words in the Bible that means a lot of different things. It can mean faithfulness. Uh, it can mean true. And sometimes it means righteousness. Like when, 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 uh, in, I can't remember if it's last week's Parsha or this week's Parsha, um, where God says, you know, I, I want Abraham and God's descendants because Abraham does tzedakah. There it probably means righteousness. Abraham is righteous in our, our contemporary understanding of the word righteous. And here it clearly doesn't mean righteousness, right? Because it's somehow parallel to bracha. That pure person who is allowed to come up to the temple will receive bracha and will receive tzedakah. Okay, so tzedakah here is somehow parallel to bracha. Bracha is clearly God's beneficence. So tzedakah is a word that is somehow parallel to that. And that's why our translator has just reward. That is a not exact translation, but it's a not bad metaphoric trying to make sense of the word staka here. And one more line before we break. Zed dor dor shavs, fanecha Yaakov sela. Also a hard line to understand grammatically. This is the generation that is seeking him him being God, right? Dorshav. You, you think that Dor and Dorshav um, are like the same word. It's not. It's a play on words. Dor means generation or group, and Doresh means to seek. So this is the generation that seeks God, or another way of saying it, these are the people who are seeking God. Mivakshei fanecha. Now we got it to God in the second person for the first time. The ones who seek your face, obviously we're talking to God. And who are they? Yaakov, the people of Jacob. That means the Jews, the Israelites, us. Selah meaning, no one knows what Selah means. It's a technical mm-hmm. term in the Psalms. It might mean musical interlude or something like Amen, but there are many arguments about it. Okay, so just to take it back, the whole world is God's. Sentence one, sentence two, because God established it on the waters. Sentence three, who can, who is allowed to come up to God's mountain? Right. You, you might, there might be implied. So who is allowed since God rules the whole world because God created everything. So who is the one who's permitted to come up to God's mountain? The one who is pure and, uh, uh, clean, pure and honest and this is the group of people who seek, uh, sorry, I forgot a line. That person will get bracha and tzedakah from God. Okay. And this is the group of people who seek God, who are seekers of God's face, who long for the presence of Jacob's deity. I'm not quite sure how our translator 
gets that, the deity part. I'll have to do a little research on that to see if there's some, um, I'm not sure how to make sense that of that, that we're, as opposed to it's Jacob who is the group of people who are seeking God, which it seems to me what it means on the surface of it. So I'm not quite sure where our translator gets Jacob to you, Jacob's deity. Okay. So although each line that we've read so far is a totally different idea, I think we can understand the sequence of them. God created everything. God founded it on the waters. Therefore, who's allowed to come up to God's temple or holy mountain? Only, right? Again, I'm inserting in parentheses, only the one who is pure, clean, and honest. That's the one who will receive bracha and tzedakah, right? Blessing and righteous reward from God. And this is the group of people who seek you, Jacob, which I think here just means B'nai Israel. Um, I'm going to allow, I'm going to stop within two minutes at 8.50. So I will allow extremely brief questions or comments and then we'll wrap up. Uh, Larry, then Meyer. So my my comment is very simple. In the Reuven Hammer annotated version of the Sim Shalom, Uh where he puts, makes comments on um, not the entirety, but large share of the beginning of the psalm, the one phrase he doesn't comment at all is which seems to me to be the most difficult to understand as you are suggesting. I'll work on it. I'll, do, I'll do a little more research. On, but on I think it's phrase. interesting. He, did, he didn't yes. feel any okay. obligation to explain. Okay. All right. Maya. I, for me, that oh, you're in and out. distance from God. I'm looking for an intercession like when God was involved in creating the world. Say it. We lost the beginning of your sentence. Say it again. I'm sorry. What I'm suggesting is that we, Jacob, children of Israel, are looking for God's involvement in our world like he was back in the creation. Good. Thank you. I, a word that I sort of skipped out, didn't make much of is Elohe Yish'o, the God who saves him. Him meaning the person, the righteous person. Okay. So the intercession that we want is bracha and tzedakah, right? From what kind of God at this moment? Not, not, um, I don't know, punishing God or whatever, you know, lots of other adjectives, but the saving God, the protecting God. God I think it's a God of deliverance, fancy English. Thanks. Okay, um, we're a few minutes over. We're going to stop here and then we will do the second half of the Psalm next week and we'll wrap it up. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.